They were just sitting here. I took them. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends, born and raised in the Lone Star State, share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Long before the arrival of Europeans, the land that eventually became Texas was occupied by a diverse array of Native people with complex variety of cultures and lifestyles. Their interactions with each other and the Europeans would later come to shape both the culture and history of the state. Today we're going to take a look at some of these tribes that live predominantly in the eastern half of Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texas river? I'm going to go with the Frio River because it's the only one I've ridden a tube down. Well, that's the part you can ride the tube down and not the little trickle part at the end. (laughs) Yeah, There's actually a lot of little parts you can ride the tube in on the Frio. I'm going to say the Brazos River because... It's mighty and brown and has great Texas historical significance. Yeah, yeah, go pick the big one. Washington on the Brazos. I'm going to say, I'm going to cheat and go with two rivers, the Perdinalis and the Colorado, mostly because they come together on Lake Travis, which uh, I spent a lot of fun times at Lake Travis. Mm, I'm going to check with the judges, and they say, you cannot pick, yeah, must pick one. Ah, well. To see the... You can have two. To see the effect of Native Americans on Texas, you need look no further than the name itself. The word is a Spanish translation of the Caddo word Tejas, which means those who are friends. And it's the inspiration for mottos like the friendly state, drive friendly the Texas way. From that early contact until the last tribes moved to Oklahoma or onto reservation, the Native Americans and European settlers shared a rocky relationship. This relationship was sometimes friendly, often violent, and always worthy of the larger-than-life character of Texas. We've already looked at the Comanche in another episode, but today we're going to look at some of the other 25 tribes that called Texas home. Since you've already mentioned them, uh, we'll start with the tribe responsible for naming the state, the Caddo. The Caddo were a tribe of mound Indians who inhabited the area of Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. They were related to other cultures of the central U.S. who built massive mounds of dirt as part of their religious beliefs. They were farmers and had a society familiar to European settlers, which led them to being referred to as civilized. The Caddo were once a single tribe with the Wichita and Pawnee, but they split before the coming of the Europeans. The other two tribes moved into the plains, while the Caddo moved into East Texas, where they formed two main groups. The Caddo Hidacho lived around the Arkansas-Oklahoma border. They had a central village with a paramount chief and several other villages scattered up and down the Red River. The Tejas, or Hassanai, Cato lived around modern-day Nacogdoches and had fewer satellite villages scattered around both sides of the Sabine River. Nacogdoches is actually built on the remains of one of the Tejas Cato's biggest villages. The area the Cato claimed for themselves is temperate with plenty of rain, and they were farmers. It's also called the Piney Woods for a reason, and the Cato's used the many trees that grew in that area. A particular note in the non-pine tree category is the bowdark tree that has a tough but springy wood, which is perfect material for making bows. This is the only area in Texas where this type of tree grows, and the Caddo are the only ones who harvested it. They didn't keep these bows only for themselves. They traded them with neighboring tribes and even the plains-dwelling buffalo hunters. The Caddo used some of their harvest to construct impressively large huts. Wood frames were covered with grass or cane to make up the walls. These huts were 
often large enough for multiple families to occupy, and each group would have two huts, one for winter with full walls and one for summer, which only had a roof and a raised platform to allow air to flow underneath. Raising the floor combated the heat and humidity of an East Texas summer. Just like a patio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had a house and a patio. They had a house with them. They had a house and a patio. Very house. civilized. The cattle were farmers and hunted game native to the Piney Woods. Each year, the men also traveled to the edge of the Great Plains to hunt buffalo. Buffalo hunting prior to horses involved either isolating single animals from the herd, finding dead animals, or stampeding smaller herds off cliffs using fire. All of this done while they were on foot. They also used carefully controlled fires in their agriculture, burning away the underbrush and the thick forests to leave room for their crops and fresh grass, which attracted game. Their control of this burning process was so great that Europeans visiting the area for the first time commented that the forests in America resembled parks in Europe. At the time, the Europeans assumed this was a difference in the environments, and it's only more recently that scholars realized that it was no accident. In addition to their woodcraft, the Caddo created advanced pottery, which often included intricate patterns or handles and spouts in the shapes of animals. The remains of this pottery can still be found in the area. The first recorded contact with Europeans occurred in 1541 when De Soto came through Arkansas and Texas. This contact was peaceful, and the Spanish were impressed by how civilized the Caddo were. They got along so well that a century and a half later, the first Spanish missions were created in Caddo territory. This peaceful exchange was no doubt assisted by the fact that the Caddo were farmers more than hunters, and because their homes more closely resembled the houses the Europeans were accustomed to. This included having furniture such as beds and chairs. The clash of cultures between the Spanish and the French and those natives was not as great as it was when the Europeans dealt with other more nomadic hunter-focused tribes. Of course, things weren't entirely peaceful between the two peoples with the Europeans encroaching on the natives. The earliest Spanish missions in the early 1700s failed because smallpox devastated all of the modern cultures, including the Caddo, and the Spanish took all the blame. The Caddo were so greatly depopulated that many moved west to San Antonio when the missions moved there. By the 1820s, the area became more crowded as the remaining Caddo were forced to share their land with the Cherokee, Alabama, and Cushata tribes who were pushed out by encroaching white settlers and hostile governments in the southeastern United States. Although Sam Houston tried to respect the rights of all Native Americans who lived in Texas when it was a republic, things did not go so well when he was not in power. White settlers often stole cattle and crops from the Caddo, and they provoked the generally peaceful people into fights as an excuse to retaliate violently and seize their lands. By the early 1840s, most Caddos were moved to reservations on the, along the upper Brazos River to get away from these abuses. Even there, they did not find the peace they sought, and in 1855, most of the Indians on the reservation fled to federal reservations in Oklahoma Territory. A small group of about a thousand Caddo followed four years later, effectively ending the Caddo's presence in Texas. The long interaction that European settlers had with the Caddo meant that a great deal of information is available about them, but much less information exists about the Atacapan Indians who lived further south. They were on the coast near what is today Houston and uh, east into Louisiana. In fact, Atacapan is actually a language spoken by a group of similar, loosely related tribes rather than a more uh, organized society like the Caddo. The Atacapans were semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers who lived largely by harvesting sea animals and plants. They generally remained near the coast during the summer and moved further inland when winter came. Their diet shifted from seafood to land animals as the different seasons pushed them inland. 
The lifestyle didn't lend itself to permanent settlements, and the Atacapans lived in wickiups, simple portable structures made of bent saplings covered with hides to protect the occupants from the elements. One group of Atacapans did not follow this mold, however. The Bedais lived on the edges of the Caddo lands, and because of the nature of their territory, they lived much like the Caddo. In fact, for some time, the Bedais were thought to be part of Caddo society. It should be noted that Atacapan is a Choctaw word that means man-eater. This name for them undoubtedly came from the ritualistic cannibalism that the Atacapan and some other Native American tribes engaged in, though the prevalence of this practice is magnified in myth and legend. Most historical documents about the Atacapans come from the French, and they've focused largely on those ritualistic feasts that so fascinated and disturbed European visitors. The fact that many of these Europeans actually were visitors at the feast and not the main course is telling. The Atacapans referred to themselves as the Ishak, which means the people in their language, and that's common with most Native American people groups. Records are unclear, but the first contact between the Atacapan and Europeans probably occurred in 1528 when they met survivors of the ill-fated Narvez expedition. This included the famous Cabeza de Vaca. Another coastal tribe that Cabeza de Vaca and his fellow survivors encountered were the Karankawa, whose territory began on the western edge of Galveston Bay and extended all the way down to Corpus Christi. Like the Atacapans, they were not heavily studied by Europeans, and they were the subject of myths and misinformation as much as scholarly investigation. The Karankawa shared the tradition of cannibalism, and this became the focus of many stories about them. But, like the Atacapans, the practice was for ritualistic reasons, and they ate only the leaders and powerful warriors of enemy tribes they captured. In fact, the Karankawa who discovered the remnants of the Narvez expedition were shocked that the starving Europeans had eaten some of their dead companions, which by their standards was for no good reason. This cultural difference between many of the native Texan tribes and the European newcomers led to confusion when Spanish missionaries were trying to convince the natives that cannibalism was a disgusting practice, but then tried to explain the intricacies of communion. The Karankawa were fearsome warriors and, by all accounts, practically giants. Many were over six feet tall, and in a time when the average height of a European man was five foot seven, it was easy to see why they were considered so imposing. Their weapons were equally fearsome, and their bows were almost as tall as they were. The Karankwa favored hit-and-run tactics, appearing in their canoes, firing volleys of arrows at the European explorers, and then disappearing into the swamps and marshlands of the coast before their enemies could react. While Cabeza de Vaca had a good experience with the Karankwa, the relationship between these natives and other Europeans were not always as good. For example, during La Salle's expedition in 1687, members of his group stole two canoes from the Karankwa. The natives asked for them back, but the French simply refused. This started a shooting war between the two forces that resulted in the French colony being wiped out. I don't know. You know, finders keepers, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe they should have just given the canoes back. Yeah, they could have done that. But, uh, you know, they're French, so, you know. <laughs> Ooh la la, canoes. Ooh la la, They canoes. were just sitting here. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like French. The, yeah, you sound like the Brooklyn French. <laughs> they were just sitting here. I took them. In the 1830s, the Karankawa were getting along relatively okay with their Anglo-American and Tejano neighbors. Alice Oliver was the child of one of these Anglos, and she spent a great deal of time with the Karankawa in the area. She learned their language, and her account of the natives written in 1880 is the only reliable surviving example of their language. Like the Atacapans, the Karankawa were nomadic people. They harvested the fish and other seafood on the coast during the winter and moved further inland during the summer months, 
when the fish migrated away. Also like the Atacapans, they used wikiups as shelter rather than living in more permanent structures. The Caranqua's departure from Texas was much more tragic than dramatic. Many were taken as slaves by Spanish colonists, and as many as 80% died due to diseases introduced by the Europeans. There was no mass migration of Caranqua to reservations. Instead, they largely died out, and while a handful remain, there are no major populations of Caranqua today. The Coahuilatecans shared their eastern border with the Caranqua, and their territory extended south and west all the way down into Mexico. Coahuilatecan were a collection of tribes with similar lifestyles and territories rather than a distinct nation. In fact, there are two separate languages spoken in the Coahuilatecan region, further evidence that they're not a single culture or nation. Coahuilatecan was more of a term for any native tribe living in the region than the actual description of those tribes. Before the coming of European settlers, the Coahuilatecan hunted buffalo that ranged into their territory. They also ventured far outside their territory on trading expeditions with other tribes. The Spanish explorer Alonso de Leon was a witness to one of these trade gatherings near modern San Marcos in Austin that included the Coelaticans. Other tribes from far and wide came to these camps as they were trading with members of the Cato tribes, as well as Jumano from far west Texas. Things just went downhill for the Coelaticans after the Spanish arrived. Natural climate change that occurred around the same time meant that the bountiful herds of buffalo stopped coming as far south. The Spanish missionaries and settlers took the best lands that remained, and a slow decline occurred from when they went from prosperous traders and buffalo hunters to a people who were so starved for food that they literally ate rotting meat to survive. Throughout the 1500s, the Spanish raided the Coalitican tribes for slaves. In fact, things got even worse in the early 1700s when their territory was encroached upon by the Apaches who were being pushed south by the Comanche. Stuck between the Spanish colonists and the Apache, there was little for the relatively peaceful Coelitecans to do. The desperate natives flocked to the food and resources offered by the missions, and they were often willing to adopt whatever customs or religions were demanded if it meant they could get food and shelter. It's important to note that one of these missions, the Mission San Antonio de Valero, played a famous role in later Texas history, as it's better known as the Alamo. All these factors combined so that the Coelitecans faded from Texas history in much the same way that the Caranqua did. Instead of a mass exodus to a reservation, the Coelitecans simply died out or disappeared through intermarriage with Spanish colonists. Their neighbors to the north were the Tonkawa, who claimed the territory around Austin and San Antonio along the region known as the Balcones Escarpment. Likely due to their centralized location in the state, the Tonkawa served as traders with many of the rest of the tribes in Texas, hosting the previously mentioned trade gatherings near what is today's San Marcos. Despite being relatively stationary and possessing land that was suitable, the Tonkawa were not farmers like the Caddo. This was partially uh, religiously motivated as the Tonkawa believed they were descended from a wolf, and since wolves did not farm, they wouldn't either. In fact, Tonkawa means the people of the wolf. Instead of farming, they hunted the buffalo that still ranged into their territory, as well as the copious number of deer in the area. They also harvested uh, nuts and berries and lived off crawfish and other animals that lived in the rivers. In addition to the ever-popular wikiups, the Tonkawas also used teepees for shelter. There's some mention in text of the time of them having huts, but these are probably mislabeled wikiups. The Tonkawa had friendly relations with European settlers, and they even served as scouts for both the Texas Rangers and the U.S. Army in conflict with the Comanche. This was not entirely to gain favor of the Anglo settlers, though, since they hated both the Comanche and the Apache, who come into their territory in the 18th century, and the feeling was definitely mutual. 
In addition to the wikiups that all these tribes use for shelter, there was one other tradition shared by most of the tribes native to Texas, including the Tonkawa, Karankawa, Atacapans, and this was namely tattooing. The native tribes tattooed both their faces and their bodies, and this added to the confusion the explorers had in distinguishing between the different tribes. Like the Karankawa and Kualatikans, the Tonkawa did not have a mass exodus out of Texas. Between the encroachment of the Apache and then Comanche, and the steady increase of European settlers, the Tonkawa just gradually declined over the years. Between the encroachment of the Apache and then Comanche, and the steady increase of the European settlers, the Tonkawa just gradually declined over the years. The last survivors moved into Cherokee land in Oklahoma in the 1880s. Today, their language is lost. As mentioned earlier, the Alabama Coshawta tribes, who eventually lived in East Texas, were not natives. Offshoots of the Creek tribe, they came from the southeast U.S., obviously giving their name to the state of Alabama. The Alabama Coshawta were farmers and mound builders, and these facts caused them to be labeled as civilized by the European newcomers. In fact, by the 17th century, many of them lived in European-style homes on European-style farms. Like the Caddo, they used controlled fires to manipulate their wooded environment to burn away the undergrowth. Fire was not just a tool for the Alabama Coshawta, though. It also had a religious significance. A sacred fire was kept burning in the temple that topped each of the massive mounds they built. A smaller fire was also kept burning in each individual home. The Alabama Coshawta did not have a place in Texas history until 1803, when they migrated into the area around the Sabine River. This was following an earlier migration in the 1780s into Louisiana that had been forced on them by American settlers who wanted their land. They integrated rather easily with the Caddo, as the two tribes had many similarities. In 1858, they were given 1,280 acres of land in the area to form a reservation, and in 1955, the federal government turned administration of this reservation over to the state of Texas. Technically, this means this is not a reservation as it is not its own nation, but it does make the Alabama Cushada, along with the Isletas or Pueblo people of El Paso, the only Native American tribes to have a large, distinct population in the state. Today, you can visit the Alabama Cushada of Texas Reservation in Livingston, Texas, where around 500 members of these tribes still live and preserve their culture. Well, there's a lot of interesting tribes that have lived in Texas. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, um, both in terms of just, you know, sheer real estate, (laughs) but also in terms of the number of tribes and traditions and pieces that are there. I think this is illustrating when the Spaniards came and the French came. This was not an empty land. This was not a empty wilderness as, you know, probably they considered it, but this was a vibrant area, a vibrant, uh, with a lot of different cultures that were all living together or whether they were interacting with each other peaceably or not. And, you know, we talk about the six flags of Texas. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cultures, there's a lot of, um, traditions, and then there's actually, you know, fairly well-defined territories and areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I think it still gets to, you know, the root of what we talk about over and over about Texas, the the frontier spirit and the self-made nature of the Texan people. The Native Americans were doing it first. Right. (laughs) You know, it's like they were here, they were living here, it was a populated land. Uh, The Europeans, you know, may have put civilized in quotes when they encountered the Cato and some of the other tribes, but they had their own civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, they were building, they had technology that was, you know, better than a lot of other places. Right. There's one myth. There's one thing I'd read about the Karankawa a while back that I thought was interesting was 
you know, they, they lived in the marshy swamplands of South Texas. They were all around the Texas coast. And to keep the mosquitoes off, which are prolific in the Texas coast. It, they, is, the, it is the state bird. They would make a grease out of, um, out of rotten, rotten fish and mud and mm-hmm. cover themselves in it yeah. to keep the mosquitoes away. And alligator yeah. fat. You know, like, yeah, it was, it was just, yeah. it was a lot of not great. It wasn't like beautiful perfume. <laughs> and uh, there was a story I read that that was another big turnoff to the Europeans was there were these <laughs> tall, scary people with giant, you know, they were like, oh, they, they, they covered in mud. They yeah. covered in mud that smells, that ain't mud. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, we talk about the Six Flags of Texas, but I've always considered that the, if the if the Native Americans of Texas had a flag, they were really the seventh flag. And really, you could consider that there were twenty five more quote unquote flags of Texas that yeah. that that had this land and ruled over this land, and and it influenced it. You know, you look at all of the rivers and lakes and things in Texas, and these names, the Tonkawa and the Caddo and all these things keep popping up, and you're like, well, what do these mean? Well, these are the people that lived here, and then ultimately. The biggest influence that still is permeates today is is our very name. Well, I think yeah. thirty one flags over Texas would be an awesome amusement <laughs> yeah. park. I'd go there. Yeah, I think that there. would be you know five, at least five times bigger. Yeah. It would be cool to see a seven foot tall Karankawa reenactor yeah. covered if, in covered in alligator if, grease. If, if we built that though, then I imagine the French section would get squeezed down even smaller. <laughs> uh, what what I find interesting about this story is that. On the surface of things, it seems that if the European settlers had not come into Texas, things could have proceeded relatively peacefully. It, it seems like most of the conflict came when Europeans came in from the south and east and north and pushed the Apache and the Comanche down yeah. below or into the, the into tribes. the areas of the eastern tribes who were living relatively peacefully and trading and you know just surviving and farming and living their lives and all of a sudden the Europeans came in and were encroaching on everyone's territory and squeezing these tribes together. Well, and in common with all of the other Native American tribes, the disease really right. was the the difference maker. Um, you know, we talk about the, the Karankawa, 80% of their population died due to disease. The yeah. Caddo, millions of people of the mound cultures died in just a few years from smallpox. So that's a big difference. I think the other thing that's interesting is that the other the other area that the Native Americans really influenced Texas history is in reaction. The Europeans came, you know, they came to Texas initially looking for treasure, but they didn't find any. So then what brought them here or what caused geopolitical changes? So so LaSalle came here and and settled and then his people were wiped out by the Indians. The French traders came here like Saint-Denis came to trade, which brew in the Spanish. The Spanish came as missionaries to mission to proselytize to the Indians. So they did have the influence. It's not today. It's, it's an indirect influence, though. Well, it's hard because when we were in school as kids, you spend a nice piece of American history talking about the American you know, the, the, the birth of America and the relationship. So you, you read about things that happened on the East coast and things that happened in Ohio and that kind of Indian relations are really covered because there's a French and Indian war. But here in Texas, 
even though they're a significant piece of history, I don't think we really educate or cover it in any really significant depth in schools, right. at least not to the point where it really made a big impression on me as a kid. Well, yeah. it's it's just what's covered from 15,000 years ago to 1492. And then from that point on, it's the European influence. Yeah. And that's really, you know, it's to the, to the, to the influence of America's. But, but it's a shame, though, yeah. because, you know, particularly the Caddo, which we talked a lot about in this, you know, they were they were farmers and they had this they had a good understanding of, of tools and fire and they built houses and they they had a, a very peaceful community and an existence greatly differentiated from maybe what we expect from our thoughts about. Yeah. And the Spanish and the Mexicans had a very different relationship with the Indians than the Anglos did. And the Anglos as you talk about this, the, the, the influence of history in the East coast, that's really where it influences Texas with the Anglos because they came from Tennessee and Ohio and from Kentucky and from the Southeast where unfortunately the only good Indian is a dead Indian. It doesn't matter how civilized that Indian is. A dead Indian is the only, Indian, and that's, it's a shameful part of Texas history, but the way we treated the native peoples is well, and, the, and I think that the what came to contextualize that relationship was the overwhelming influence. I mean, the real Native American influence in Texas is the Comanche. Yes, and their their complete dominance. And I think that that's the first, first, last, and only thing that comes to mind when you right. start talking about Native Americans in Texas. Right. But there, there really is this wonderful culture that existed on the eastern half of Texas. That was part of the the piney woods, and and I think that's the diversity of Texas that that people miss when they go. Well, Texas thinks it's so great, and it's right in the middle of the map. It's huge. We're geographically huge. We have a great amount of diversity in terms of land mass, and in terms of weather, and in terms of you know the wildlife and the and the places that are there. So why would you not expect to have this great variance of of the different cultures that have emerged and live right. there? And you can still experience a lot of this, the cultures of Texas tribes in Oklahoma, because many of them have moved to reservation in Oklahoma. And uh, so, so the Caddo tribe, I know, is definitely based in, in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, and so a lot of the, that culture is preserved through those, those reservations, those organizations of the, of the Native American tribes. There's also some nice exhibits and information at the Institute of Texan Cultures, which is in, in San Antonio. San Antonio is a great museum. Special thanks today to our friend James Evandroth for helping us research and write this episode. You can follow him on Twitter at Blackguard Press, or you can see his work at blackguardpress.com. And that wraps things up for today. You can find our notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.